electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli. Cramer has the morning off. Coming off record highs for the Dow, the S&P, the Russell, the transports. Uh, Big tech looks to give back some at the open here as the president addresses the nation last night with a blueprint to have all adults eligible for vaccine by May. Our roadmap will begin with some of that tech turbulence. The Nasdaq continues with a pretty volatile week, rising yields, uh, applying some pressure. Plus, as Carl said, President Biden directing states to make all adults eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. We will give you the date and the details. We're also going to have an exclusive with AT&T CEO John Stanky. That is ahead of the company's Investor Day, which begins shortly. But thankfully, Carl, we get them even more shortly. <laughs> That's going to be good. So much to get to uh, with uh, with Stanky, David. Uh, Mike, I was just thinking, you know, here we are on Friday. Um, and if you're a reopening bull, uh, this week sort of had it all. COVID progress, vaccine progress, central bank support, obviously stimulus. Yeah. As the Treasury secretary says, those checks are going to start to come out this weekend. Yeah, without a doubt. And uh, that's been the dominant uh, tone, the, the big theme in the market. The market has really not wavered from that for months of basically saying, you know, it's not in the analyst estimates for uh, consumer driven and industrial companies. We'll see if that's, uh, you know, the case or not. And then in, in the mixed in with it this week, we had this thousand point rally in the Nasdaq composite from last Friday's morning lows. I mean, that's basically what you did, almost 7%. And this hypersensitivity that we have with the Nasdaq and the growth stocks to Treasury yields, it's, you know, almost becoming a bit of a caricature of itself, I think, in terms of the tick for tick uh, type moves. Uh, But what it does show you is that the yields are moving up for the same reason that the non-tech stocks are moving up, which is people trying to price in this real acceleration of growth that we're all seeing. It's all spring loaded. It's right there, ready to go. And what are the, you know, what what are the kind of um, negative side effects of that for parts of the market? Uh, And the, the Nasdaq, too, has just risen up to a level where it basically it's it's kind of is it just a bounce because it was so washed out or uh, can it basically participate fully in whatever happens in the next phase uh, of the market? And that's it's not really sure because it kind of came up to a 50 day average and it still looks like uh, it's kind of in a downtrend, Carl. Uh, indeed. You know, David, it's interesting. FT's got a piece basically arguing that the bond market is counting on this inflation spike to be uh, short lived. Uh, based on sort of short-term scarcity. Uh, We got a lot of, obviously, the producer price index number today getting some attention. But, you know, there's still this case out there for tepid long-term inflation, deflation in apparel, deflation in financial services, deflation in energy. And we're going to wrestle with that for a while. I think for a long time. And we're going to keep a close eye on that 10-year yield, as as Mike was pointing to it as well, eclipsing 1.6 again. Uh, You know, as we move into the summer, as we start to get a better sense on GDP prints, as we really get a feel for how hot this economy is going to be, Carl, as we fully open up, as per the president, uh, perhaps as soon as, let's call it uh, July, 
where things are returning to full normalcy at least, right? You're going to be in the backyard having your barbecue for July 4th, maybe even be able to be inside without a mask on with your friends. So, you know, the question will be how big um, do we really get close to that 6% or more GDP number that people are talking about? And I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm, this is far out of my areas of expertise in terms of, Mike, whether we really see significant signs of inflation. But I do know... Uh, and wonder whether we'll continue to see the outperformance of some of the groups that have come to the fore so far this year, whether it's energy on the back, of course, of what has been inflation in oil, uh, whether it's uh, the banks on the hopes, I guess, of a steepening yield curve, which have also been incredible performers, or whether we revert to the norm. Yeah. Uh, you know, basically, the inflation story is literally everybody expects there to be, because of statistical reasons, this what looks like a surge in inflation in the next couple of months or quarters. Uh, and then the question is, can the market kind of trust that it is just a, you know, a kind of a fleeting period, as Jay Powell will be saying and has said, and as all economists are pointing to? Uh, right now, the uh, priced-in inflation expectation for the next 10 years is above 2%. It's like 2.3% if you look at the bond market. However, that doesn't necessarily tell you what it's going to be. Just because the market is kind of positioned in that way, it actually is not necessarily a great predictor of what, uh, what manifests in terms of, uh, of inflation. So, yeah, we, uh, we obviously don't have uh, any way of, of seeing through that or, uh, Carl, what it would actually mean for equity multiples for, for the sectors that, uh, that have lead, uh, led and lagged. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, of narratives, uh, guys, that are, are pivoting in some ways, interesting piece this morning in the journal on Tesla, uh, essentially arguing that uh, their grip on the market, uh, their sort of uncontested uh, domination of a nascent EV industry is getting challenged here. They point specifically to Ford uh, and the Mustang uh, Mach-E, which has begun eating into market share. They point out uh, David VW is now the top selling EV in Europe. I don't know if you saw earlier in the week, Detroit Free Press did a story about a Tesla owner who bought a Mach-E, the Mustang, drove it across the country. And for a a hometown paper was pretty complimentary about what Ford has put together. So we're going to watch that. We talk often about the potential for competition uh, for Tesla and, the, and, and what will be the growing uh, choices for the consumer in terms of EV of all sorts of different models from um, automakers that have been around for a very long time, Ford, GM, uh, and the others uh, as well. You know, Mike, I don't know. I mean, you, you follow Tesla every yeah. day, as I like to point out. You, I think you're forced to comment on it in some ways, yeah. given its importance to the overall market and to the tenor. Uh, but we talk about that a lot, and yet the analysts will come back and say they're the leader in battery. Uh, they control so much of their own supply chain to some extent. Uh, they're growing around the world, and it's not just about a play on EV. It's a play on so many other things. That's right. And the, the vertical integration and the, the, the sort of better mousetrap in terms of manufacturing and direct selling, all that stuff, without a doubt. The problem is that the stock price built up such a massive premium relative to what's happening in the here and now or even in the next couple of years. That's what's getting worked off. And I think it's, it's happening in a bunch of different industries. So for years, Tesla was really the only way to plausibly play the, the coming wave of, of transition into electric vehicles. And so all the excitement about the entire theme gets run through this one ticker. I say that all the time. And now look at GM and Ford share prices. They are getting credit for their commitments to this uh, new uh, phase of the industry. 
but it's also happening in other sectors. I pointed out, you know, Amazon has taken a backseat to Gap and L Brands and Lulu, whoever else figured out Omnichannel. Uh, you know, you could actually look at it in media. Netflix was the only way to play streaming. Now all the old media stocks are also at least getting partial credit for having <laughs> sorted it out. So they're getting something. Kind of I don't know what they're getting at Viacom well, Discovery. Well, you could say yeah. Disney. That's, I mean, right. Viacom is, is its own huge. I, yeah. I keep talking. It's up 130 percent, Mike. Oh, 130 it percent. It, it's in the perfect place right now, which is in all the value indexes. <laughs> it was kind of overowned. It was kind of heavily shorted for, you know, uh, a name like that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it, and the market is just kind of running that same play until it proves it doesn't work anymore in terms of buying the value uh, versions of these companies. Yeah, we're going to talk uh, some more Viacom. Uh, what a week for streaming in general between the, the price appreciation of Viacom, uh, the sub number at Disney Plus, Netflix today, this story about them cracking down on password sharing. And we will talk to, as David said, the CEO of uh, AT&T, John Stanky, when we come back in a minute. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. AT&T is hosting its Investor Day this morning, providing more details on its $27.4 billion investment in C-band spectrum licenses, along with the outlook for businesses, of course, that include HBO Max. Joining us now in a CNBC exclusive ahead of the meeting is John Stanky, the company's CEO. John, very happy to have you with us this morning uh, and so many things to discuss. Let's start off with C-band because that's a big number, $27 billion. And along with it comes additional CapEx above where you were to, to build it out. What is it going to mean for the company in terms of your ability to offer 5G? Well, look, it's an important step to 5G. We, we start on a great foundation of our low-band spectrum. Our sub-six spectrum is you know, the largest portfolio in the industry, so it's a good foundation to build from. This particular spectrum hits a important enabler capability to kind of broadly put out more bandwidth. And uh, this, this investment is a long-lived investment. And I, I can tell you, David, Having been through a number of these auctions, they're, they're always repeating themselves. You, you kind of go through them and you end up investing a little bit more than you thought you might have to or you really wanted to. And then you get five years down the road and you look back and you say, thank God we did that because uh, the appetite for customers to use the service more as it becomes more capable always seems to open up opportunity. And I think it's going to be the same in this case. Yeah. Where do you think we are in that cycle? And I mentioned it, obviously, also in light of Apple, which is out there with the phone, 5G enabled. But, you know, the upgrade cycle, I mean, how long until we get to that sort of that point that you're describing, John, in your opinion? 
Well, I think, you know, if I go back and think about what happened at the early days of LTE, many of the same questions that were out there, uh, that are out there today, were out there in 2010. You know, it's going to take billions of dollars to turn up LTE. Where is the money going to come from? How is it going to be used? And I don't think anybody looks back now and says, you know, what did the last 10 years bring us when LTE brought in that next step function of bandwidth and that next step function of performance on the network? It opened up all kinds of wonderful things that people do that they never thought about. We didn't know ride hailing was going to be there and you were going to need that kind of capability and, and responsiveness. We didn't know there'd be this much entertainment video available to us that people wanted to take with them on the go. <clears throat> I think we're very much in that early stage right now with 5G. And as we start seeing things like more autonomous vehicles come out, we start seeing private networks show up in businesses. We look at new opportunities that show up in medical device monitoring. We're all going to be looking around five years from now and say, wow, I, I didn't think about that. And we're going to find plenty of use for this capability and this bandwidth. Yeah. Um, John, you know, conversations <clears throat> of numbers like this obviously get us to the balance sheet where AT&T always faces some questions. You guys point out in your press release having a strong cash position. I'm sure it will be something you focus on in part of your investor day. $23 billion in the expected payments this year for the C-band spectrum. Dividends to shareholders that uh, come close to 15 billion. Gross capital investment in the 21 billion range. Obviously, got to keep investing in HBO Max. How are you able to do it all and and give investors the confidence that that dividend will be there? Well, look, we you missed one number there. That's 26 billion dollars of free cash flow this year, and we generate a lot of cash. And yes, it is a large balance sheet, and we have more debt on it right now than we'll have in a couple of years. But we also generate a tremendous amount of cash flow in this business, numbers that others are aspiring to get to. And as a result of that, we feel really comfortable. We did a lot of work over the last couple of years restructuring that balance sheet. It's, it was admirable work by the team. Yeah. You look at our, our interest rate costs of what we're paying on that portfolio and how maturities have been extended. We are in a great position right now. And even with the slightly higher level of investment in C-band than what we expected, you know, the reality is, is that's about a year's worth, a little bit longer, but about a year's worth of, of deferral on getting us down to our our ultimate uh, ratios that we want to get to on the balance sheet. So, um, you know, we're not in a position where we got to go out to the long-term markets and restructure our portfolio. Right. Um, in fact, you've seen what we've done is largely on shorter-term maturities because over the course of this year with cash flow and in the next year, we'll largely take care of that and, and be back on our march to delevering. Uh, right. And I know you have those targets out there. But, you know, I get this question. I'm sure you get it a lot more than I do. But in the conversations with some of your investors, which is basically why not just go ahead and cut the dividend uh, and gun the gun the company for growth, you know, sort of position it more for growth. Disney did it. They didn't suffer at all. Direct to consumer is becoming so important for you through HBO Max. Why not just take that move, kind of put aside all this conversation about the dividend or not and move towards trying to I guess, you know, supercharged growth. Well, David, I don't think we have to make that choice right now is the short answer. But I would tell you, if I gave you some insight to the discussions Please. internally with our employee base, uh, if, if I was having to make choices around not funding growth and investment, then I'm not doing my job properly. And so, you know, our belief is we've got the portfolio of growth we're going to talk about today in the investor day and where we're putting our time and energy 
and we are resourcing it in a way that we think we can be successful in those markets and return this business to top line growth. This year, as you know, we, we will be back to 1% growth coming out of COVID, and we expect we're going to start to move through an acceleration phase as we get uh, traction in these markets we're attacking. So I feel very comfortable when we're down at, you know, 50, low 50s, mid 50 payout ratios on the dividend that we can sustain that right now and not have to walk away from the opportunity to keep this a a strong and sustainable business. Now, the moment that I cross a path where I don't think that can happen or that we're not getting recognized for that capital return, of course, I've got to ask that question. But we're we're not in that position. Uh, I want to talk a bit about HBO Max because that's going to be an important part of your presentation today. And you come out with some new estimates in terms of how many subscribers you'll have. 120 to 150 million by the end of 2025. Now, you ended 2020 with 61 million and you're pointing to 67 to 70 million by the end of this year. So you're pointing to, let's call it, seven to nine million new subscribers in 2021. Then you're going to double it over the next four years, John. That seems like quite a reach. Well, look, we're accelerating. First of all, you have to understand if you kind of look back at what we did, you know, we, we grew more in the last seven months of last year than we did in the previous decade. And, and as importantly, we're opening up 60 new markets by the time we exit this year. And that's just the start. You know, we open up all of Latin America and the Caribbean uh, come uh, June, late June this year. And then we'll start moving into Europe. And so opening up those new markets and having an opportunity to go places where, frankly, it's more greenfield, you know, as opposed to domestically in the United States, where we were working off a bit of a base, you end up picking up a lot more growth. Add to that the exciting development of bringing in an ad-supported option for customers, which broadens the opportunity domestically in the United States to start attacking price points that we've been locked out of. You know, that's what's going to accelerate that growth. And the team feels really good about their momentum. We haven't seen our best days. You know, we've been struggling a little bit coming out of COVID with production issues and the lineup of content. And we're going to now start seeing that move back into full swing. And when that starts to happen, plus the improvements in the product, I think you're going to be really pleased with what you see happen on subscriber counts. Yeah. And you think the ad support is going to be helpful. I mean, sometimes it can you know, one outweighs the other. Give me the sense as to why you felt like this is a, a, a worthy area to move into in terms of ad supported. Well, look, I think what's important is that you give customers choice to meet them where they want to be met. And this isn't a, a, you know, a situation where a customer can't find the experience that they truly want. If they want to pay a premium and be in a non-ad supported environment, that option is out there today. And it's, in fact, it's the product we're selling today and it's selling very well. We're, you know, by our estimates, if we look at the market data that's available in the market, we are probably the second leading revenue driver of of SVOD services in the United States today. And and it's been a very successful dynamic around that. We've opted to maybe be a little bit slower on subscriber growth for the benefit of ARPU and a premium product. And I, I think that balance is a deliberate balance and it's worked out reasonably well. Yeah. Now with an AVOD product, A customer who chooses not to come in at that price point can, and they're going to get a different experience. And that experience is, frankly, from uh, other ad-supported products, I think going to be even tuned a little bit better. We've done the advertising in a very artful fashion. I think people will find it to be uh, non-intrusive and very easy to work with. And there will be some content in the environment that will be 
uh, premium and not ad supported. So you'll be able to move around in the environment and sometimes know that you can get content that doesn't have ads associated with it. And that's pretty unique in the market. Yeah, uh, obviously, all this requires even further investment. Um, You're talking about, I think, peak dilution in 22 and breaking even in 25. Why those years? That's just an artifact of scaling and getting the customer account and driving revenues in that support the base of the platform. As as you know, the economics of, of these global services, it's important to get that fixed cost coverage in. And then you grow from there and you start to get that flywheel effect is after you get past the fixed cost coverage where you start seeing those returns occur. And, yeah. and David, you know, that's not any different than any other subscriber supported business we've built over the decades of this company. You know, people don't recall that you know, early in the wireless days, we went years and years before we had positive cash flow. And now they're very attractive franchises that are very profitable and have nice sustaining subscriber bases and direct to consumer. And what we're doing with HBO Max will be another one of those franchises before it's all said and done. Uh, We talk so much about HBO. Sometimes we don't discuss Turner at all. Obviously, you know, still an important component of that company, of the of the Warner assets. How do you view it, though? Uh, The Turner networks, obviously, CNN and the TBS, TNT. Do you still see them as core, particularly those uh, general entertainment cable networks, which frankly doesn't seem to be a particularly great business going forward. You know, the medium we're on right now, certainly to your point, is you know, probably seeing its peak and is coming down the back end. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have good days in front of it. It doesn't mean that it can't be a profitable operation and contribute to cash flows that can allow you to reposition the business strategically. And I, and I think that's how we think about it. We have very capable people who have done a nice job positioning those assets to even be relevant in what I would call that shrinking dynamic of the cable bundle, not only shrinking from a subscriber base, but shrinking in terms of the number of channels Mm -hmm. that are relevant for a customer to carry forward. And we have a relatively small portfolio compared to many others in this industry, a tighter number of channels that are doing very well. CNN coming off a record year, record ratings, record revenue, the Turner channels holding their own because they're really not pure general entertainment. They're mixed general entertainment and sports and still carrying good advertising premium around this. We're seeing what's probably going to be a record NCAA Final Four for us relative to advertising moving forward. So the team's done a really good job of keeping them relevant, even though we know it's a fairly mature business, and using those cash flows very wisely to pivot to the growth capabilities that we can and what we just yep. talked about with HBO Max. We've got about 90 seconds. I'd love to get a couple more in if we can. Um, uh, the movie, the window for movies, obviously did very well in HBO Max with, uh, with Wonder Woman 1984. Is it a new world now? Are we ever going to see the return of the windowing that we did in the past, or uh, is that kind of gone? I, I don't think we're going to see the return of the windowing exactly the way it was two or three years ago. I think there's still going to be a meaningful theatrical window for content that is relevant to see in a theatrical experience. Um, is that window going to be exactly as long as it used to be? I, I doubt that. I think it's probably going to be more tuned to very capable and robust platforms that are now showing up in society. Um, and I think it's going to be a little bit more dynamic as to what occurs. Uh, yeah. But I, I think uh, the industry is constructively working through this, and it's going to ultimately be a win-win for everybody. Uh, and finally, John, you know, we forget at and is connected in so many different parts of the economy, the consumer 
small businesses, enterprises. What are you seeing right now? Uh, what are your expectations in terms of how this economy is turning and what it's going to look like? Uh, my expert, I, I have to tell you, I was reflecting the other day about where I was a year ago and where I am today. It couldn't be more different. I, I feel for the first time in a long time there are tailwinds that are back. Um, I think the second half of this year is going to be pretty robust. And uh, I, I'm encouraged because, frankly, I think it's going to be more robust than we expected in our business plan. And it's always nice to have a tailwind behind you that's a macro tailwind. And I think we're going to be in that that circumstance as a, as a country and an economy. John, always appreciate your taking time. Uh, look forward to hearing more from you today at your Investor Day. Thank you. It's good seeing you, David. Thanks for having me on. Good to see you as well. John Stanky, CEO of AT&T. Carl. All right, David, a lot more still to come this morning. We'll check in with T-Mobile CEO Mike Sievert. Got lots of news on individual names, Boeing, Novavax, Ulta, NXP, Apple, uh, MasterCard, and yes, GME. We're back in a moment. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Uh, Apple is going to be a name to watch this morning. Morgan Stanley's uh, Katie Huberty this morning, Mike, says, We agree that some reports of uh, iPhone 12 mini weakness are probably real. Uh, they see the pullback as a buying opportunity. They remain overweight, 164. But it's City's Jim Suva, uh, Mike, who says longer term that a car has real potential to be long-term accretive. He says it'll be a bridge between a $2 trillion and a $3 trillion uh, market cap, reiterates a buy over there at $150, um, and does say uh, the car you would expect would have lower-than-average corporate margins for Apple. Right. And I find it fascinating that uh, at this point, with the stock down 15 percent from its highs, you have people still reaching for the big picture new market story for Apple. Uh, you know, a trillion dollars in, in market cap going from two to, to three trillion. I mean, how big a piece could a car be in there? What's global automotive profits it's going to filter in? We're not saying I mean, maybe Katie Huberty is saying, look, the company makes 60 or 70 billion dollars in net income this year, next year. You know, that's not enough for you. And I think it tells you that we're out of that mode of thinking about these huge huge, you know, kind of mega giant profitable companies that are great defensively in a, in a world where growth is low and yields are low. And now we have to find, you know, the, the story in terms of, uh, you know, the next magic market they're opening. You also heard people saying it's going to buy Bitcoin for Apple Pay. I mean, I, you see a lot of speculative stuff on this call. <laughs> yes, that's uh, that's the period we're in. There's the opening bell, guys. A look at the uh, NYSE and the NASDAQ on this final trading day of the week. As we said, uh, coming off of all time highs for at least four, the Dow, S&P, Russell, and Transports, and we are on pace for our best week in about a month for the major indices. Guys, we generally um, pay close attention to trends in aviation just because of the large reopening dynamic that's at play there. Boeing today, David, uh, an order for 24 new Max jets from an investment firm, uh, rights for another 60. I noticed TSA just put out some passenger traffic, uh, 1.28 million yesterday. Uh, through TSA, and that is going to be just short of the record post-COVID. Um, so we're definitely working our way back in terms of air travel traffic. We are. And the year-over-year -year comparisons are going to get pretty impressive, too, aren't they? Uh, given that nobody was traveling uh, a year ago or starting into that period. 
as, as you guys well know. Listen, the airlines have raised so much money that they've got it to actually pay for things, I guess, in addition to withstanding the enormous losses that they have, uh, Mike. Although I don't know if, you know if that trade, so to speak, has run its course yeah. uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the reopening part of it. It's, it's fascinating how fast the market has just sort of assumed, you know, almost a back to normal. I mean, if you look at, because of all the money raised, if you look at the enterprise value, debt plus equity of United Airlines, it's back to, it's back to the pre-COVID peak. Um, some of them are even higher than that. The, yeah. A basket of travel and, and leisure-related stocks is higher. Now, the economy's bigger this quarter, next quarter. Um, and in theory, you know, the, the floor for the entire market has been lifted and valuations across the border higher. But it is amazing how uh, this was uh, all done, the whole round trip happened before we really did get back to a point where people were, were traveling freely again, Carl. Yeah. Guys, the banks are going to be the one uh, to watch this morning. Uh, definitely the biggest gains as a sector, uh, better than 1%. There's a few different uh, crosswinds here, David. One is um, uh, just the Fed data on household net worth that mm-hmm. came out yesterday. Uh, American household net worth at an all-time record as of the mm-hmm. end of the year. Bankrate has a, a look at what the average household may get in terms of windfall between stimulus checks and the tax refunds. Uh, they say the average family of four between those two things are probably looking at a windfall somewhere in the neighborhood of $10,000. Um, so we're going to watch retail sales. I see over at Webbush today, uh, David, yeah. they take Visa to 250 and MasterCard to 400 <laughs> Wow. And you heard Stanky talking about his expectations for this for the, as, as we head into the, uh, to the summer here as well. Um, I should mention 18 T-shirts up, but we'll talk more about that. Mike, I look at the banks, and it really is amazing the year that they've had. And yeah. it's, a, it's a year that obviously is only, what, a little more than two, two and a half months in. I mean, Goldman Sachs is up 30%. I think that's all-time highs. Uh, J.P. Morgan's got a $480 billion market value now. Yeah. Doesn't feel like it was that long ago where we were talking about lows. Now we're talking about highs. Exactly. Well, they're, gonna, they're right in the middle of you know, this huge flood of a very – uh, cheap deposits for them going to be flushing into their uh, their accounts. And, uh, you know, obviously the macro is very strong and the yield curve is moving in the right direction. I was just looking actually at price to book ratios for J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. They are now at new highs for the post financial crisis period. Right. Mm-hmm. J.P. Morgan, a forward looking basis is like one point eight times book value. You know, two times book was kind of, yes. you know, fully value for those guys. Uh, however, if you go back pre 2008, they all traded at these big premiums. Nobody thinks we're back in that world. The leverage in these banks is nothing like it was. The returns on equity are not. However, uh, a lot of just too much is going right, uh, probably fundamentally for right now, including credit costs for them to uh, to really have too much of a stumble in the near term. Plus, there's just it's just this rotational energy. Everybody wants yeah, to but grab Mike, I mean, to exposure. your point, we were trading. They were many of them were trading below tangible book for yes. quite some time. You Absolutely. Know, point, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, Morgan now, Stanley for a long yeah. time was wallowing down there and they've been completely re-rated in this period. Yeah. Amazing. Um, you mentioned Goldman, David. Uh, David Solomon with uh, additional comments at a global town hall yesterday talking about bringing workers back. Uh, we understand that uh, until more of us are vaccinated, that's going to be a challenge, he says. Mm-hmm. But based on the current pace of vaccinations and where we hope to be by the summer, uh, we believe that we are well positioned and there's a good chance uh, that we can meet that goal. We have seen a bunch of memos this week, David, uh, from CNN. Uh, you mentioned Viacom, um, the Washington Post about bringing people back, letting people yeah. have their summer vacations, basically, but then starting to work it back. I don't know if you noticed yesterday, Target, uh, a piece in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, uh, that Target at its downtown corporate office is going to reduce its footprint by a third. 
So we're going to watch not just the return to work, but the return to work to what and in how much space? It, listen, I, you know, again, to your point, uh, it, it does appear September now is the new September of last year. Remember when we were all talking about getting back? Uh, I actually did, but very few people uh, came back to the office, that's for sure, last Labor Day. But this one seems to be when they really will. Uh, Mr. Solomon at Goldman has been somewhat outspoken on his uh, desire uh, to have people back as soon as possible and his, uh, his feeling that the company really benefits from, from the congregation of people in the offices and the uh, exchange of ideas that results from that. And many do. Uh, many CEOs do. But what I continually hear from them as well is, we're going to have a, you're going to we're going to give you a flexible work schedule. You're never going to be able to work remote. Um, few people are going to work remotely all the time, but many are going to be able to work remotely occasionally, Mike. And so that does lead you back to this idea of commercial real estate. You know, I didn't get to ask Mr. Stanky about the return to work plans, for example, at Warner, which uh, has beautiful headquarters now in Hudson Yards on the yeah. far west side of Manhattan. But those kinds of developments, you just have to wonder, will any of these companies ever need additional space, let alone the space they currently have? Oh, exactly. And that was it was kind of the reckoning that never quite happened um, because the system was kind of backstopped in terms of commercial real estate and, and, and some kind of liquidity crisis there. But now it's sort of you're going to find out exactly what we're uh, going back to here. And I think pretty much every company assumes their their office footprint's going to going to shrink. I also do keep an eye, by the way, on the New York City subway ridership stats, and they're still at 55 to 70 percent declines from the equivalent uh, day a year earlier. Uh, so that really hasn't come back. And obviously, you know, this is a part of the country that's pretty careful. But uh, yeah. nonetheless, it's still a long way to go back. Uh, yeah, I've been one of them, though. It's yeah. nice. It's, it's clean. Everybody's wearing yeah, a it's mask. Pleasant, right? Yeah, it's no, no problem. Still the best way to get around. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll get back to, well, we'll see. Who knows? Uh, guys, uh, a few, well, Mike, I'm happy to see Viacom's up because it, <laughs> well, not sure what I'd do if it wasn't up 2%. Yeah. Uh, and Discovery as well. That that uh, that pair, one up 135 percent now for the year, the other up 127 percent. Number of friends at both those companies. Uh, well done. You're buying lunch next time, whoever you are. That's for sure. Uh, but that move continues, and, and it's not clear it has much to do at this point with fundamentals. No, it, it's momentum. It's it's um, it's quantitatively driven algorithms that just. I guess focus on price momentum, and there it is. Look at that move in one year. Well, it's, it's also very telling because it's something else that's happening in the, in the overall market, which is we're in a phase where value is morphing into momentum. And, right. and the momentum strategies are now looking very much like what six or eight months ago would have been a value portfolio. Part of the story with Viacom and Discovery is they started out at incredibly depressed valuations, and they had been for years. They were kind of priced for permanent decline, under 10 times earnings. Now that they, you know, now they're back toward a, a market multiple, uh, but not necessarily in an area where, you know, some of these wild, you know, revenue multiples that are being given to emerging companies. So who knows how long the sweet spot lasts, though. It just seems like really a beneficiary of, you know, the, the, mar the marginal dollar going into yeah. the hottest ideas. Yeah. Carl, I did want to hit China briefly because there are some moves going on there that have gotten some investors' attention. Alibaba shares are down about 4%. And financial CEO resigned, they say, for personal reasons. Um, there were some moves made on Tencent, but not something we should forget about. Some of the largest companies in the, in the world, the ADRs trade here. Certainly Alibaba is one that investors know well. Uh, but the government there continues sort of its focus on uh, anti-monopoly practices and, and financial services. Uh, and it certainly is giving some investors pause. 
Yeah, uh, we're going to keep our eye on Coupon, of course, after uh, after the debut uh, this week. I did want to ask Mike how closely he is watching Europe because the vaccination trends uh, in Europe are nowhere near where they are uh, in the U.S. and the U.K. Italy's talking some tighter restrictions, potential localized lockdowns that'll go maybe take it through April 6th. I see Disneyland Paris today, Mike, yeah. says they're not going to be able to open on the 2nd as they had previously planned. Um so they've, they've got an issue in terms of, obviously, it's part of its supply as AstraZeneca keeps reining in what they think they can deliver uh, in the coming months. Um, but what's that going to do to not just asset classes, but overall global inflation trends? Maybe that puts a damper on it. Yeah, you would think it's massive divergence building up in terms of where the growth is and where it isn't. And of course, we heard, you know, the ECB gets concerned when global yields go up and their yields go up and they want to stand in the way of that. And it's almost acting as, you know, a little bit of a break on on our yields as well. It's also happening, you know, in Australia and other places. So it, it's interesting. It's sort of a uh, sort of a hot, cold uh, story, which is pretty familiar from from the old days. Uh, but uh, they did have a good run in their markets. I mean, European financials, for example, uh, really did have uh, a huge comeback. We'll see if that can last, Carl. Yeah. Uh, meantime, uh, that 10-year uh, keeping um, uh, still above 161. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Hey, Bob. Happy Friday, everybody. And you're right, Carl. Uh, yields are smacking around the stock market again. So what we're seeing is the stimulus is pumping the global economy uh, and it's moving bond yields and that's affecting the markets. Let's take a look at the sectors. Banks, of course, a big winner. They've been a big winner this week. Bank uh, up about 6% as a group here. Uh, Energy is holding up in industrials. There's your reflation trade, which continues to be strong. What's lagging? The two sectors most sensitive to moving yields, which would be tech stocks as well as China. China's been lagging all week along with uh, technology, and they tend to move uh, pretty much hand in hand. So where are we with this whole story about markets and treasury yields? It's it's complicated. But basically, this whole narrative for higher yields is really, really powerful. You just feel the market, the yields want to move up at this point. Stimulus is the big mover for global growth. What have we had? $6 trillion in stimulus in the last year? That's 30%, 25% of GDP of the United States. Those enormous numbers, bigger than we've, we've ever seen here. And then we have the inflation story, transportation bottlenecks, adding to price increases. Hope people think that'll go away eventually. But you get the idea. This is very powerful, this, this narrative for a higher move up in yields. And because of that, you get that growth value yo-yo, I call it. And value is winning, at least this week. There you see the bank stocks. Great week for bank stocks. They're up about 6% as a group, as I mentioned. There's the big money center banks, uh, the regional banks also uh, having a good week. Uh, the reopening play, retail, for example, the, these retailers have gone bonkers this week. They're all up double digits here. Well, there's the growth stocks I'm showing you here. So you see Tesla, PayPal, NVIDIA, Microsoft all to the downside. They tend to move to the downside on what we've seen. But uh, I mentioned earlier, retail stocks have been doing great. Macy's was at a new high. Uh, they're uh, flat to slightly up today. So that's a good sign overall, that reopening trade that we're seeing. If you're confused about all this growth versus value, what do I do? Banks, do what Jack Bogle did. Own the indexes, the S&P 500, when it's a new high yesterday. And why would you worry? Why would you want to worry about growth versus value? Let the nerds worry about it and own the broader indexes. I'm acting like Jack Bogle, but I am a Jack Bogle disciple, of course. Uh, finally, just to make a quick note about uh, active versus passive management, we have some of the best hedge fund people in the world on, people who are legendary and do outperform the market. But it's important to remind everyone, most people don't. 
Most active managers are terrible long term. S&P Global every year does a study of active managers against their benchmarks. Uh, The year end study came out yesterday for December 31st, the whole year. And once again, numbers are bad. I'm looking here at growth funds here, big, big uh, active growth funds. One year, 60 percent underperformed. Two years, Carl, uh, three years, 69 percent. And it gets worse when you go out even to 10 years. 82 percent of active fund managers underperform the S&P 500 when they use the S&P uh, as a bogey. So, Carl, we do have the best people on CNBC, the guys who do outperform, but most of them don't. And another reason why Jack Bogle became famous shooting against those people. Index funds. Yeah, Carl, we miss him. We, we miss him, Bob. Thanks. We'll see you later, uh, Bob Pisani. Uh, let's get to Rick Santelli, who brought us some of that wholesale, wholesale inflation numbers earlier in the morning. Hey, Rick. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, let's re- quickly touch base there again. I picked one of them. This is the year-over-year core. It was up 2.5%, uh, as you see on this chart, uh, the loftiest level since the end of 2018. Let's call it a little bit more than two years. But that's not the only issue to pay attention to. Last night when Verizon priced their jumbo deal, Hedging, selling pushed up some of those yields, not only domestically, but everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's central banks looking at each other going, whose rates can we control best? And it popped up a bit. And at the end of March, not only uh, in terms of the fiscal uh, year for Japan, but also what's uh, half year, but also what's going on with regard to the end of March changes and some of those margin requirements for Govy securities that was changed during the uh, COVID crisis now Many of these primary dealers are not only uh, dumping their treasuries, but when you add in everything I just described, you're definitely seeing pressure. Look at a two-day of 10s. Uh, we could see that 161 plus is kind of the high yield. And if you open it up to one week, um, last Friday we had a 162 intraday uh, high yield. Remember, the high close is 159 for 10s. 232 for 30s. You really want to watch these levels on a Friday. Remember, it isn't necessarily how high yields are going to go. You shouldn't be picking tops. These are still very uh, aggressive markets with momentum. What we really want to watch is how small the pullbacks are. Because if the pullbacks remain as small as they are, there's more upside in yield, more downside in price. Oh, by the way, and if you bought any of the auctions, you're underwater there with settlement on Monday. There's more selling pressure. Open the chart up to the end of December 2019, and you can see we're at 13-month high yields on 10s, 14-month high yields on 30s. And this is a global impact. You're seeing gilt yields go up. Even the ones that are controlled with yield curve control, whether it's Japan or Australia, all these central banks are trying to outmanipulate each other in the face of what is, of course, considered stimulus. Uh, rates are going up, lots of reasons, but maybe one of the reasons is we look at everything through the prism of this giant debt. And finally, the dollar index for one week, it's up on the day, down on the week. Watch that 92 level, that'll bring it back to unchanged. It likes higher rates. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick. Thank you. Uh, Rick Santelli, we'll talk to you a little bit later. So clearly, uh, tech is lagging this morning. The banks. And some industrials are helping to lead. Uh, Boeing's the number one uh, Dow component. Goldman comes within six cents of 350. We're back in a minute. Residential and commercial pool equipment manufacturer Hayward Holdings set to make its public debut this morning. Company saying it's expected expecting increased demand in 2021, driven by a robust backlog and suburban migration during the pandemic. Joining us now to discuss it all, CEO. Kevin Holleran. Uh, Kevin, good morning. Uh, congratulations on uh, on the IPO pricing. The stock, I don't believe, has uh, has opened yet, but thanks for joining us. Thanks for, for having me. Excited to be here. Wonderful day for our, for our company and our employees. 
Um, I imagine so. Uh, now, tell us a little bit about the about the market and what you're seeing demand wise. We mentioned there was a big story last year in the summer about a backlog of uh, newly constructed pools. People couldn't find, uh, you know, the, the people to dig them and, and equip them. How does that look right now and how important is that for uh, for your business in the immediate term? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, great, great demand. I really do think that the COVID experience has really reinforced uh, people's love for the outdoors and a desire to get out and, and lead a healthy lifestyle uh, in their, their outdoor living. So demand is still robust, um, and we're expecting another great year uh, uh, ahead of us. Now, you, um, you manufacture a lot of the equipment, right, the, the pumps, filters, um, and things like that for uh, the pools. How much of it is, though, about newly constructed pools as opposed to the install base, the existing uh, customers? Yeah, we, we, we do build the equipment necessary or needed to make your pool work. That's really what, what Hayward does. Uh, the, the, the strength of this business, gentlemen, uh, is the installed base and the aftermarket. 75% of our revenue is tied to a very reliable uh, a non-discretionary revenue stream. So that's really the strength of this. New construction, of course, is great. It adds to, to that installed base. But the muscle behind this, uh, this industry and this company is that installed base out there for folks needing to repair, replace, upgrade, and remodel their pools that are already uh, uh, in the backyard. Hey, Kevin, congratulations. I mean, I remember um, last summer when uh, pools were a huge issue already, as, as Mike has said, uh, getting an appointment to get a consultation on either a pool upgrade or installation was like a multi-month process. Is labor on the installation side a serious uh, drag or headwind? It certainly was last year. You know, I believe in free markets. I think that folks will, will probably uh, uh, come to realize that there's uh, greater demand uh, than there is labor right now. So uh, I believe that there are some contractors uh, starting to enter this, this space to maybe uh, address some of this uh, backlog uh, situation that you described from last year. Obviously, the consumers in general are in good shape. Uh, household wealth has been going up. So a lot of the inputs probably look pretty favorable for you. What's happening on the cost side for you in terms of equipment? Uh, we hear about supply chain issues and uh, expensive things like steel. Yeah, there is some there is some headwinds. Uh, you know, our normal pricing increases take effect with the start of the seasonal year, which is October 1st. Um, we take on mitigation plans and productivity targets inside. So we're not passing all of that along. But there are some clouds starting to form uh, on the horizon uh, when necessary. We have that opportunity to do an off cycle uh, price uh, increase uh, out to the marketplace. In fact, we recently did that just about, well, two weeks ago today, in fact, uh, we pushed some, uh, some increased prices out there for this very topic. We're starting to see some inflation starting to, uh, to creep in around some commodities, uh, some of our uh, raw materials, uh, as well as, frankly, some, uh, some freight and some logistics costs. All right, Kevin. Well, we, uh, we appreciate you uh, filling us in, and we'll uh, certainly watch for, uh, for the stock to open and, uh, and follow up with you after. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the interest in Hayward. All right. Carl. We'll take a break here. Um, pretty interesting market action. Regional banks, new all-time high, up almost 6% for the week. That's six straight weekly gains. Haven't done that in about, oh, a decade. We're back in a moment. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. 
from enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.